0: Rational discussion, common sense, open debate. RCR, Reality Check Radio with Paul Brennan. All right, it's time to welcome the first political figure to speak on Reality Check Radio. You could say it's a New Zealand first. And, well, let's really introduce it right there. Winston Peters, leader of New Zealand First, veteran New Zealand politician, joins us. Winston, thanks for coming on Reality Check Radio. great to see you and to hear you. Thank you. All right. this is quite a bit to get through. Um, I want to talk about a number of sort of areas. First of all, and I've been looking into the points you made on the March 24th State of the Nation, and I want to go through some of those points, Uh, maybe a, a bit of talk about policy as well. That's what it's all about. But uh, I'm interested to get your sort of overarching comments on the state of the nation, because a lot of us feel that that we've, we've done better in the past, there have been better days, and we're worried that, you know, we're sliding. How do you see it?
1: I think that's what a lot of New Zealanders are worried about, particularly ones who have seen better times. And uh, I do excuse some who are younger, who have never seen the way this country once was when it was a world leader. And, in fact, political scientists used to get on a ship in those days to come to New Zealand to try to understand how this country was doing so phenomenally well so far away, 12,000 away, miles away from its markets, where the Minister for Labour in those days who handled unemployment knew the names of every unemployment person, unemployed person who was registered because there were only 29, not 1,000 or 100, just 29. So what happened? I, I know you
0: can't go through every piece part of that, but how do how did we get from there? And I remember those days when yeah, the unemployment list was you know mm-hmm. in an exercise book on one page. How did how did we get to here? And you've been there for some of that, so you would have seen yes the progression. So
1: explain that. There's a lot of uh, explanations and reasons for it, but what we to use the modern lingo, so to speak, we lost our mojo in the context that whether it was labor or national going back then, they were serious nationalists and they believed in getting their wealth and exports to the max as an export-dependent nation. And then when we could build it or do it ourselves, and this is what this word in inverted commas resilience means, we did it ourselves and then we stopped. When we started to go international, we started to go global, whilst countries like Singapore, who are learning from us, Taiwan, Scandinavian countries went straight past us. They were way behind us when we started, now they're way in front of us. And we've got this, how shall I say, stubbornness, this obstinacy to try and say, no, no, we're great. We're still the best in the world, but we're not. And it's not putting my country down, quite the converse. It is a hope that we can recapture in a modern context, using old lessons, which is what experience is about, to take ourselves back to the space we once were. And we could be a world leader again, and will be, but only if we focus on our national interests of our people versus the world, so to speak, all together facing the world in competition, because that's the competitive world we live in. How much work do we have to do then?
0: Sounds like a big task. You've got to undo all of that over so many years it seems are we up for it do you think i know probably you're going to say what we are but i have to ask
1: well if we don't and that's why i use the phrase we've reached an inflection point if we don't turn this around then this slide will continue and i've used examples when at my speeches about how we went down the neoliberal experiment of 84 as hawk and keating in australia were beginning to incrementally change bit by bit building on the best their country And over those next 25 years, they grew, in real terms, 34% larger in their economy than we are. Look where we would be today if we had grown 34% larger of that time as uh, we should have. So we had a whole lot of sort of, you might call, experimental economics and philosophies going on which simply don't work. We need to change that, have a dialogue and say, look, let's put aside your extremist prejudice It's about New Zealand, it's about our 5.2 million people and where we go from here, and also our role in the Pacific, the Blue Continent, in which we should be such an important partner.
0: I might want to ask you about that in just a moment. In terms of um, the people of New Zealand, it's kind of hard to know where everyone's sitting. I mean, it's all common sense. But as you go around, what are people um, saying to you about how we're doing, you know, you know, the mojo thing. Uh, is there a um, Is there a wanting to perform better or are we just, she'll be right, mate?
1: Well, the sad thing is that when you have that discussion in a private context with various people from a different political background, they do admit it, that we're not doing as well as we should. But the moment they go public, it's all on full defence. My party's right, the other party's wrong. Uh, and I'm a so-and-so and I'm a so-and-so on this side. And we never can agree. Now, we're not going to go anywhere with that. So we do need to have a dialogue about what are our important uh, objectives going into the future. How can we take our serious wealth as a country, add value to it onshore here before we sell it offshore to some other market? Take our forestry industry that's been very controversial lately. But it was our third biggest export. But most of it is going offshore with no added value whatsoever. Now, that's not smart economics. Well, how does that work?
0: Because you think businesses would find those opportunities and put that value-adding in place? Because I see all the logs on the wharves at Wellington every time I drive past the keys. there, the <laughs> mountains of them, and someone's making them into something somewhere. Um, I mean, that's up to, it's up to industry and entrepreneurs and businesses, isn't it?
1: It is, but they will not do it unless the government understands and the problem is you've got too many people, people coming to politics who don't know anything rudimentarily about business. Now, if you were to say to those um, foresters, no log leaves the shore until everybody wanting to add value to it is supplied, like in Canada, it would change overnight. But you've got to, to use that horrible phrase that the extremists of the right don't like, incentivize it. You've heard the phrase in the past, you should not be, the government should not be picking winners. Hmm. Really? Well, if you don't know what a winner is, what are you doing in the game, so to speak? (laughs) But it's about consultations, about talking to people and about answering, asking, and this is the most critical part in your business, I'm certain the same as mine and same in politics. Ask good questions and don't start, don't stop asking them until you've got good answers. And then have the good sense, To look abroad to see what is working there in the same way they once looked at us and said, that's a country that's working. We want to duplicate some of what they're doing. We've stopped doing that. And we need to go back to re-examining with an open mind, without political bias, what's wrong, and making up our minds to fix it. And bearing in mind what the objective is, it is to enhance the life of not an elite group of New Zealanders, but every New Zealander... Possible.
0: Is there a kind of little class war going on here at the moment? Because the average people do seem to be forgotten and and the country is surely common sense strengthened when when those people are doing well and having good lives. They seem to be overlooked.
1: Well, we used to take pride in the fact that here there was no class war, that Jack was as good as his master. Mind you, we also used to say... Uh, but he's got to prove it so to speak uh, and that was one of the wonderful things about new zealand we had the most expensive egalitarian society in the whole wide world political philosophers were looking abroad and looking at all these countries and they thought to themselves how did it happen in a country called new zealand and you know the amazing thing about it uh, i've looked at it myself as a somebody with a political science degree and an interest in politics and economics and i came to the conclusion. the it was because practical men and women got on and did the darn job. We just saw overnight where this group of people on the East Coast, the road's been cut off. Waka had prides itself on its Maori name but doesn't know how to fix up any potholes. Is mm. doing nothing about it. So through their forests of a Maori land group, they put this new road virtually overnight. That's a can-do attitude. I'd recommend that they go to Kotahi and give them a lesson in this, because all you see at the moment is cones everywhere, machines not working, and nobody doing anything most of the time after say half past three in the afternoon or on the weekends. That's not how you rebuild a country.
0: Yeah, cones everywhere. You're not wrong there. Um you you mentioned just a moment ago about asking, you know, good questions, the right questions. And i've been watching a little bit of you in media over the last uh, week or so and <laughs> and i know i know the relationship be- between you and journalists has been um well you've, you've called them out basically over over the years and i think a lot of people well, you know, are
1: frustrated. can i just say Ray, you know you make a speech and they haven't they interview you and they haven't read it and i said to them well what are you going on well what other journalists have said now that is not professionalism i don't blame the journalists i made a speech almost 35 years ago, saying that modern journalism journalism in New Zealand is dying because it's not been given, particularly when it comes to journalistic inquiry and investigative journalism, space and room. I'm proud of that speech and I'm sad that it was true. But I'm not, not against them. I want the fourth estate to be a true fourth estate and not a bunch of fifth columnists who take a $55 million bribe or public interest hmm. journalism and start running the, go- the government's narrative and attacking anybody that raises questions
0: it's serious though isn't it because a lot of new zealanders get their uh, information from mainstream media it's it's where they uh, and and it's usually once over lightly it's a headline or a comment and i, and I watched the interview you did on uh, one of those sunday current affairs shows and i could see frustration building uh in you
1: my mistake ben and i should have taken on some Taking along some Valium pills and said, Look, I have one of these. <laughs> when you ask a question, give me just maybe five seconds to answer it. Before but there it- seemed to be smart <laughs> comments made
0: too. It was it's like a game. It was like yes, a it, game. Well,
1: it's, like, it's like, I feel like saying, with greatest respect, what do you know about this world when you talk about, for example, the Maori world? I was born into it, went to Maori school. I was the uh, honorary solicitor for the 28th Maori Battalion for decades. Uh, I ran one of the biggest land cases ever in, to defend Māori against the Crown and a local council a long, long time ago. But now I'm sitting there with someone who's like, this is of no importance. Now, I don't expect to get death from anybody else. But what the person could do is actually not waste time exhibiting what they don't know.
0: Yeah, but it's, it's also a game to, I don't know, show one Upsman Ship or one up, up, <laughs> womanship, or whatever the word oh, is. Oh, yes,
1: I'm glad you said that because you, you are stumbling <laughs> that one very bad. You can say one upmanship because the other side of the problem is that women don't behave that way. So it's a manly trait.
0: Okay. So it's a, f- it's factual, is what you're saying. Yeah. It's accurate. Um, and I want to get on to, um, those, uh, you know, state of the nation points in, in just a moment. And another thing I've heard you relentlessly, well, they try and corner you on. I'd be interested to get your comments on this. As you, you know, putting Jacinda into power and kind of taking the blame for that, I always <laughs> thought at the time that there must have been a lot more going on than that. And I think you tried to sort of point that out in that interview, actually, and probably on a, previous occasions. Can you tell us what happened there? How come How come it wasn't possible to reach some sort of deal with National? Because it would have put them into power. You would have thought that would have been the object of the exercise. How come that didn't happen and it ended up going the way it did?
1: Well, you notice on The Nation on Sunday when that was put to me and I started to answer it, and the way she dismissed it of no importance, I mean, these are facts. I was there, she wasn't. But the first meeting we had in 2017, National had the most votes of any political party, so it followed as night follows day, we should have the first meeting with them and a stunning thing happened, which really concerned me greatly, is that Bill English called me aside before the meeting started and said, could I say, speak to you over here? So I go over to the side of the room and he said to me, she says she's got the numbers, but she hasn't. And I'm stunned by that because I instantly thought, knew that he meant that Judith Collins was looking to mount a coup against him, and that I should have known that, and that he was assuring me that it wouldn't work for her. But all I can see is a previous time in my life when I put all the past aside and shook hands with Jim Bolger only to find that Jenny Shipley was organising a coup against him. And I thought, holy Toledo, I'm looking at the past right up in my face now. And Besides, which they ruled me out all that time. And the second thing is that they can't get past is that for three years we had a, such a good government, Labour took all the credit and whilst all by themselves. Now that they're gone, after, nothing, now that we're gone, after 440,000 440, national voters went and voted for Labour, and not me in any way, no handbrake anymore, which I was criticised by all the time by the media, all of a sudden, it's Winston's fault. <laughs> You one thing i realized and Your you,
0: fault Winston come on apologize now.
1: But one of the reasons one of the things you realize in this game if you're looking for fairness or gratitude find another job.
0: Hmm. Obviously you don't you don't really need it to carry on that's clear.
1: No uh, i don't but i uh, you know um, look fishing looks enormously, enormously attractive at the moment and international <laughs> you have a lot of things but I worry, at, like every like, like a lot of people, and I think we have to join and do something about it. Because if you are worrying at night as to why this and this and this, all these things are going on at the same time, then there's an answer for that. Well, do something about it. Make commitment and follow. We'll
0: get, we'll get on to that in just a moment. I'm just just still curious about what happened uh, pre that, um, or or as the government was coming together in that election. So... That's what you, you, you saw history sort of playing out all over again, let's say, and then that left really, what, only one, one thing you could do, and that was...
1: Well, you know, it's, it's, it, I've not revealed that in the past until people like the interviewer tried to have a go at me the other day, hmm. because talks should be reasonably confidential. The outcome should be public. Right. The talk should be confidential, otherwise nobody can trust you. And that's another horrible thing about politics. Uh, I can say modern politics. There was a time when you could cross the divide with one of your opponents, have a private conversation, would stay there. Now it's all out. And saddened by that, it's not nostalgia, it's called character and principles. And I wish we had more of them.
0: Hmm. So you, you talk with Labour and, and you form that government, and from memory, it went reasonably well. Um,
1: it was hard work, I can tell you. It <laughs> was hard work because they kept on coming up with these ideas. Uh, and you know what they were. I mean, they had they wanted a capital ca- gains tax inquiry. And I said, okay, but when it's over, when we see the report, can we then decide what we're going to do? And the first challenge was, okay, so you've got a capital gains tax um proposed. What are you going to do for capital losses? Like on Cyclone and Gabriel and all around the country up mm. north. In Thames and even in Auckland, West Auckland in particular, where people have lost everything. You're going to compensate them for that? They never had an answer. You see what I mean? So well, they that- hadn't thought of it. Hey,
0: They hadn't thought of it.
1: <laughs> well, and now, Brennan, that's staggering, but surely you've got to look at, as I said, ask good questions and look at, as Phil Collins sang in that famous song, you've got to hear both sides of the story. Hmm
0: did you have any inkling that um, left alone with their majority uh, to themselves that it could go like it like it's gone
1: i was certain i was actually certain and i was certain in the closing months of that campaign when uh, the thing was shut down and with uh, the lockdown covid lockdown and also the vicious attack corrupt maniacally dirty as it was from the serious fraud office who we've beaten twice in the court, but nobody's interested. So,
0: so take us through that. You said corrupt. So what would what, what would have happened there? What are you saying happened happened there? Because I do remember that case. I was working for NBR at the time. We were reporting on it, and I know how it ended. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, now, can I tell you, when I we won twice, what did NBR wrote about that? I put out a press statement, and no media would cover what I'd said when we won. Now, Paul, what happened was that in April... They said they were inquiring, into, and this is 2020, in the election year, they were inquiring to New Zealand first and their inquiry would be over before the election. We found out they were inquiring international, National and Labour and other political parties. No prescription for them, just for us. Now, does that not stink to you?
0: Have you looked into it? Are you trying to find I, a, a I trail back?
1: I went for it right there and it cost me a lot of money. I took them all the way to the edge of the High Court where they had to admit on the 29th of September just before the election, that nobody in New Zealand, first member, minister, leader, or uh, official was under investigation, but the damage had been done. And, so, when, I, yeah. and when that uh, clearance happened, the media wouldn't cover that either. So, what do you think uh, is my conclusion? My conclusion was that when Labour came to me with the Public Interest Fund for Journalism, and I said, How can we possibly be seen to be bribing the media? they went around behind my back and said, look, when it's over, we'll give it to you. But in the meantime, that guy's stopping you from getting your money.
0: Oh, that's so the- then the media joins in because they want the money and uh, it's basically the hit job. Where, where would that... <laughs> if your plan
1: is to pay Paul, you can always guarantee the support of Paul.
0: Not me. You're not talking about me. No,
1: not um, Paul. That's, so- just a, that's just a pun.
0: No, no. Um, so where would that... I don't want to get you know, hooked up on this too long, but it's just, it's just so interesting. So where would that, that have come from? How high up? Who brings up who and says, okay, you know? Um. Inside
1: the inner cabal of the Labour Party. It's a terrible thing that, you know, because I look back in an unusual way. With, with uh, the three years I worked with Helen Clark, we shook hands and she kept her word. Now, whatever you think of anything else, I admire people who do that. She, Cullen, and I made sure that things happened and got on and did the job we had to do. And then I had this new experience where things were kept for me, not shown to me, uh, and uh, behind my back being said to the media, this guy uh, doesn't want you to get anything. And that wasn't my point. My point was how could we possibly be giving out these tens and tens of millions to the media without the opponents shouting out bribery and corruption. And I should have known, I hadn't worked out the completed the circle. If the bribery and the corruption is going to the mainstream media pocket, there'll be no controversy about it, will there? And there hasn't been. Mm.
0: So you're calling that a bribe, right? Well, of course it
1: is. What would you call it?
0: An incentive? (laughs) Yeah,
1: okay. Now, if you're talking about, you know, assisting people to go to journalism school and all that sort of thing and education, fantastic. Even send them abroad to become top-class journalists. And don't make no bones about it. We still have some very fine reporters and journalists in this country. It's just that every inducement and enticement is against their their, their professionalism coming out in their jobs. Hmm.
0: Um, it, it would be fair to say, though, that uh, they haven't um, come out of that too well. I think a lot of people are aware of that, and I hear those comments made regarding that fund all the time and how it could have corrupted the reporting along the way. So is that your sense?
1: Well, it's worse than that. To get the money, they had to sign up to the narrative that the government laid out. It's appalling.
0: But wasn't it Wasn't it in a loan form? So if you sort of broke the deal, you had to pay pay it back? Uh, we, we, am I right?
1: You're precisely right. Huh? So you take the money, but and it's free. However, if you do not keep, keep to the script we've laid out for you, we're going to come for you and we'll sell you up. And what do you call that? It's not a loan. I call that bribery and corruption.
0: Let's look at uh, your state of the nation points um on the 24th of okay, March. We're,
1: we're, we're... What?
0: You okay with
1: that? (laughs) I'm said i glad I'm good with that because I I, I hate to point out those facts and some people hate it, but I'm saddened by it because there's no chance of us having a first world democracy without a first world independent media.
0: Well, this is the big worry, isn't it? I mean, I'm in the media and I've seen it from the inside and I have those concerns. Uh, I think people are kind of waking up to it now. Uh, But it seems so entrenched. And, and it needs to change quick, I think. Do you think it can?
1: I think it can if there's a realistic assessment of the new world they live in. Because there are things in the media today uh, best exhibited by this conversation that's happening right now. There are other assets in the market that have come with the modern, modernization of communications, and people have got to be realistic. But for the same token, whatever those modern utilities are that are into the market, let's hope that they are monitoring it the best and professional way they possibly can and not sort of second-rate, fourth-rate outfit.
0: Mm. It's all the uh, the veterans and victims and and uh, PTSD <laughs> sufferers who <laughs> ended up doing that, who have topped out of the old stuff and trying to find something new, maybe. I want to go through these points now because, you know, it's election year, people want to know, I will get a, a view on on who's saying what and and who to vote for. First of all, um, a lot of people are saying, "Is there any, anyone to vote for anymore?" The the parties that uh, you know the main parties seem interchangeable in terms of politicians. A uniparty, I've heard that term used. Um, from your assessment, has everything just vanillaed out to? the career politician, regardless of, of what party you're in and what you say in your manufe- manifesto or, or your party's history uh, is supposed to tell us?
1: Well, I reference that in my speech when I say that on far too many things, Labour and national, are just the same. Tweedledum, Tweedledee, or Tweedledum, or Tweedle or mm. it's my turn next. To, to, and I say in my speech, surely people are asking, turn to do what exactly, or to do what, Exactly tomorrow. What is your policy that's different, so to speak? And the tragedy about that is that these policies are a failure in terms of the long-term growth and expansion of our economy and the uplifting of people's social lives, housing, education, health, and first world wages.
0: Um, okay, so let's go through some of those points. I've got them here. I'll just bring them up and, and we'll, we'll rattle through them. And I've, I've looked at also the, the policy positions, and I see that they're yet to be updated from 2020, but I guess that'll be happening soon. So yeah. wh- where where did you give that speech, by the way, Winston, on the 24th of March?
1: I gave it at the Harlick Presbyterian uh, Church in uh, Benson Street. Um, it was... Uh, a, Massive audience and people being turned away and uh, what's been fascinating about the speech was that there have been some seriously honest reports and then those that weren't there filmed some shocking uh, remarks about it when they weren't even there. But no, it went down seriously well and I was delighted because it was the launch of our campaign for 2023 in a place where uh, I was a member of Parliament a long time ago.
0: And and people have been saying they've been questioning. Uh, I hope you don't mind me mentioning it, your age and, and all that sort of stuff. And and <laughs> you know, <laughs> but you look pretty good to me. Um, uh, you know,
1: and- isn't it amazing this ageistic behavior? They put people down for being women hate it. They put people down for being My, They hate it. Now we've got a, a minister in Parliament is putting white men down. Yeah. And it. it's What'd just- you make of that? By the way, quickly. What'd you make of those uh, comments? It was shocking. It was shocking, it was racist, it was false in the extreme, and I cannot believe that the Prime Minister has left her in her job.
0: But uh, he has to think about manoeuvring later on, doesn't he? So he has to be careful and, and self-censoring, does he?
1: Well, you know, if you're manoeuvring in a boat, you want to make sure that it's still above water.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. Too much of this goes on if you're manoeuvring underwater, time to bail out. But so you're,
0: see- you're seeing from from that, meeting that you described on March 24th that you said there are heaps of people there. So you don't feel that New Zealand First has sort of exhausted its base and and people always talk about comebacks. Do you feel like there's...
1: You know what I know? know? Another political party's whole team was working on it on Friday morning before I was giving it the speech in the afternoon and their PR team said to each other and their conclusion was, don't worry about it, it's Friday afternoon, none will be there. (laughs) It was law to rule they couldn't get in. If we'd allowed more people in, we'd have gotten the five or six hundreds. Now, that's what matters. You can have all this criticism. You can have all this expertise from political science and what have you. But a whole wall to wall exudes, evinces a thing called demand. And yes, we're alive and coming back. And every one of our meetings has been that way. And I heard another person, I won't say it is, but he's on ZB in the mornings. And he said, and nobody goes to a meeting on Friday. They all go to the pub. (laughs) <laughs> well, sorry, Mr. I won't use his name, but you can find out who it was. <laughs> they don't go to the pub. I know that is a reason to believe that this is a more important meeting because although it was working day, it was packed out.
0: Right. Okay, let's go through these points as listed on the website. Um, no change to the age of eligibility for superannuation under New Zealand First. Is that realistic? Because, you know, ageing population, uh, you talk about, we have to earn our way, wash our face, and, and maybe we're not doing as well as we should be. I, is it reasonable to promise that? Should there not be a little bit of age band tweaking um, to match real-world circumstances?
1: Well, the first reason why you're asking that question, not you, but people put that question out there, is because our economy is failing. If it was operating in the way it should be, and three-quarters uh, and. 30, 40% larger and 50% larger than it should, it, it could be. If it was there, we wouldn't have this thing, uh, this argument. The second thing is what percentage is going to national super? Is it eight, nine, 10% like other countries have got as a problem? No, it's not. It's barely past 5.2. And then on top of that, you've got a lot of people in the elder, the older world, over 65, who run our volunteer society significantly. If they didn't work, our society would collapse tomorrow. Mm. And then the other thing is, a lot of those people decided that they've got a chance of living longer if they keep working. And so they've continued to work. But if you're a man or a woman in a physical job, in certain types of jobs, then your body can't stand up after 65. And if, they've done, if, if my critics have done any work on that, they'd know that's the way it is.
0: Okay, so under New Zealand. You know, first, but, you know,
1: another yeah. thing I, uh, that I have to say to you is this, and I raised it at the time. This is National Labour and every other party wanting to raise the age of uh, super to above 65. And my question is so, how come you've allowed 100,000 people to come to this country then and get super after 10 years living here, having paid no tax in many cases? If you thought this is a crisis, Why don't you do something about making it harder to get, like live here for 20 years? That's been my policy. So it shows you the fraud behind their rationale and their thinking. If this was an economic crisis, they wouldn't allow that access so easily. No other country allows someone to come in and gain full soup after 10 years, whether they worked or not.
0: Yeah, okay. Under New Zealand First, vaccine mandates will end. Uh, I know that uh, many of our listeners right now and in the replays will celebrate that this has been a monumental or well, what's the word screw up even stronger than that this whole vaccine mandate thing do you think it's done huge damage to our society
1: it has it has done huge damage to medicine itself uh, and it's sad because uh, as i say in my speech the number one crisis we face with all the things we've got going on is our health system, which is massively failing. Look, I've been triple-vaxxed, but that doesn't mean that I believe people haven't got a right to make a choice for themselves. And I sat there as a minister trying to find out what was going on. as Deputy Prime Minister when this crisis came It looked like the Spanish flu of 100 years before that, when the Maori world eight or nine times died more quickly than the European world in my father's time, and we're trying to find an answer. But when the answer came, this was what I was saddened by because I was witnessing it in front of me in in meetings where ministers and the prime minister were arguing they knew what they were talking about. In medicine, like in all science, you've always got to put the rider on. There may be side effects. There may be things that uh, will happen as a consequence of this treatment and you have the right to know what they are and to make the choice as to whether you're going to have an operation or take this vaccine. That didn't happen. And why I said about these mandates must go uh, and, and masks must go, we've got 50,000 people at a sporting or entertainment stadium, nothing on, no masks, no nothing else. But if you're working in some job that the government has prescribed, then you're mandated out of a job. Just like that. Now, there's a grinding hypocrisy about that, and it needs to be exposed.
0: And it affects the health service, and it seems that it's, well, you know, the word crisis is thrown around, but I'm reading stories every day of ambulances being turned away at hospitals. Surgeons in Christchurch are now sort of prioritising cancer operations um, to those who, or excluding those who who only have a short time to live and, and picking others. You know, I think that they're referred to as death panels. I never thought I'd see that here. Uh, and there's all this craziness that's that's come from this uh, approach. And you mentioned there that, you know, the, the politicians in those meetings that you're referring to were so sure of themselves and then fear was used to propel people in a particular way. And the overwhelming advertising, which we now discover was controlled, the budgets were controlled from the prime minister's office. Um it sounds like a bit of a train wreck.
1: Well, you know, it has, it has a historical or political parallel. It happened in the Conservative Party with the um, Minister of Health in the UK. It happened with Daniel Andrews in uh, Victoria, using all this money to put out spin and fear, uh, not on the medical basis of medical propriety, but on the basis of political outcomes. It's awful, and it happened. We had people saying, this is the podium of truth. Everybody else is lying. This is staggering stuff. And I can recall Professor Gorman from Walk University saying, be careful. He was putting caveats on, saying, no, you can't say that. You will not know with certainty. And he was just shoved aside like it didn't matter. You see what I mean? It was a political purpose. And I think it was actually horrible. But at the moment, you've got hundreds of nurses and midwives and even doctors and other medical staff, mandate out of a job, whilst we are so short of staff, while you've got ambulances backed up one after the other, one after the other, because the person can't get out until there's space in the hospital. This is the most inefficient way of handling a medical system. And then there's been millions offshore trying to get uh, nurses from overseas to come here and guess what stunning result they got? 19 visas. Now... If- any they spent half a million bucks or something. Well, not half a million. No, they spent millions. Okay.
0: Yeah, I'm going to get off the uh, the vaccine thing in just a moment. Um, uh, uh, in terms
1: can of. I say, can I just say? People yep. have a right to know the facts, and they've got a right in a country like ours to have the freedom to make up their mind without being mandated and canceled out of existence.
0: Yeah, I'm sure plenty of people listening would agree with that. Um, the, uh, they've talked about an inquiry into all of this. There is concern that it's going to be too narrowly focused, uh, excluding particular things, and, and we can try and work out why that might be. Um, there are, are reports of people who oh, have oh, suffered.
1: Oh, oh, it'll be a whitewash. Yeah, you know I know that. They've already setting the terms of reference to make sure it is.
0: Well, there are people have been. I think it's fair enough to say have suffered injuries and have. They've been treated quite badly. They've been gaslit into thinking that they've got psychological problems, etc. And and surely um, every decent member of society uh, should want those those questions to be included and explored in any sort of inquiry. Uh, how, how can that be made to happen if it's going to be a whitewash?
1: Well, you've got to make sure the terms of reference are all-encompassing to take in the views of those who are opposed to the policy. It's called balance.
0: But can we rely on that happening, given that? No, we can't. No. That's
1: why I say it's, you're going to be facing a whitewash because it's not going to happen. They're going to make sure, and they've already done it in the, in, the, in the sense that it matters, they've already ensured that this outcome and the results are going to be reported after the election, not before the election where you might be able to say, well, if that's true, then you have failed or you've succeeded and we'll either praise you or we'll punish you for your fare, it's put after well after the next election. So it'll be a whitewash and Saddy. Swept under the carpet, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Uh, in terms of, of an effect on an election, if if the results or outcomes of inquiry were available before that, that could lose someone the election, couldn't it? Yeah. If it had full terms of reference and full accountability. That yeah. that's an election loser potentially for someone.
1: That's right.
0: Yeah. You were, I saw a video of you at the parliamentary protest and I think people were happy to see you. I could tell that. And uh, I wonder maybe you could give us a quick recount of that experience, what it was like for you, because that had a big effect on everyone was there. It's a big experience in their life. So you went through there, but you, you didn't make any speeches. It was kind of like you're observing. Did you think about getting up and saying something? Were you tempted or was there a reason why you
1: didn't? Look, first of all, excuse me, first of all, I was observing what was going on there, and then I learned that that the parliamentarians had all signed a pact not to talk to the protesters. Uh, As an experienced politician, I was shocked by that because in the past, no matter who turned up from whatever part of society, your job was to put somebody down there to hear them. We couldn't all go down, but you'd appoint some member of your party to turn up and talk to these people. So at least we know what's going on but they'd done something that was absolutely incredible. They'd had a pact not to talk to them. And one night I was sitting with some people, uh, workers and a business who had lost everything because of the mishandling of COVID. And I made up mind: I'm gonna be on the first plane tomorrow morning and do something about it. I'm not gonna go down and talk to the media. I'm gonna go and talk to those people and get them to know that they've got a right and they've got a point. And I saw lawyers, businessmen, all sorts of people. To castigate them as scum, as the Transport Minister Wood did, is disgraceful. To treat them like they were pariahs, as parliamentarians did, is disgraceful. So I go down there and I talk to them all, and uh, as many as I could, not to make a speech, otherwise they'd have said, there he is, showboating, pony." You know what the allegations would have been. And the media kept on streaming to me, and I said to them, I'm not here to talk to you, I'm here to talk to these people. And that's my only line, I'm going to listen to them. And I'm so pleased I did, but I never thought that as a consequence I would be uh, depicted and imaged and ruled by the Speaker of the House as a terrorist. That's what You happened.
0: were trespassed, weren't you, from Parliament? Yeah. Am Trespass- I
1: remembering that correctly? Trespassed as a terrorist. So I thought, listen, sunshine, you're not getting away with that. I took them to the High Court. And he had to apologise for that stupidity. But guess where he is now? Hmm. He's the high commissioner. He's our ambassador in Ireland. That's the reward for that sort of behaviour. Calling somebody falsely a terrorist, he loses in the court. He put cold water on young people there at nights and played loud music against our noise. Sonic
0: weapons, Winston. Fired sonic weapons.
1: Well, you know, this is disgraceful. And I hope that the people observing this will think, well, whatever I think, that ain't right. But I'm pleased I took them on. Uh, It costs a lot, but, you know, that's life.
0: Last point on this, that pact that you mentioned. How do you get together a pact like that?
1: Uh, They must have all been willing. (laughs) Look, it's either they were all on the same (laughs) Kool-Aid or they've all been drugged (laughs) or... In Parliament today, there are too few people that appear to ask good questions and to stand by their principles. You know something that most important thing, the biggest thing lacking in politics today? Is what? people with character. appear to make a stand. appear to do something.
0: It's time to, time to start uh, choosing candidates who can, perhaps. Um, here's another thing that gets on on people's nerves, and I see that you know that. And that is what you describe as the woke virtue signalling names of every government department New Zealand First policy to change them back to English. I mean, how relevant is that in the scheme of things? Why would you want to do that?
1: Well, the moment you do that, you signify to that ministry or that department that your priorities are delivering the services and not spin and bulldust and propaganda and social reengineering. You know, waka kōtahi. But this lady was trying to attack me the day on it and media uh, on, on morning report yesterday morning. And I said, to her, what's a walker got to do on a road? <laughs> she said, it signifies a moving vehicle. And I said, no, it doesn't. Walker belongs to the water. Now I said, air New Zealand's got one in the sky. It's flying you and me everywhere.
0: Yeah, without any aerodynamic surfaces. Yeah. And all the Nothing that lifts the it into the air.
1: I belong to a tribe called Ngati Wai, people of the sea. I know something about wakas. We lived it. That's what our people's called. But anyways, it's all that stuff. It's important because I want the hospital system to, when you walk into the hospital, have everything up in English so that 95% of the people who are patients and seriously ill at that time know what's going on. I know. It's Maori bold, a little bit of English underneath it. And waka kōtai, Lots are down the road, huge in Māori. A joke Hmm. on the Māori people, I might add. Uh, Well, a little bit in English. Nobody knows what they even do. I wish they'd uh, spent some time fixing up potholes in the roads and stop wasting our money.
0: Who's driving that? Is it Māori? I I don't hear great calls.
1: There's there's a little elite in Māori. Right. They've never given up. How come they've got so much say? Because they've got too many cultural travelers in the European world who haven't got the guts and the courage or the academic or historical or legal understanding to refute what they're saying.
0: You used the term virtue signaling. I guess that's what it is. Huh? Look at us, we're doing the right thing. But, but who are they saying it to? Because most people are grumpy about it. So who's the audience?
1: They don't care whether they're grumpy or not. They've negatived you. You can be a mass majority. But they believe in the Pandora's Box principle. We're going to let this Pandora out of the box and you won't be able to get it back. Uh-huh. And in my speech, I said to them in my speech on, on Friday, oh, yes, we will. And I'm going to tell you how we're going to do it. Because there are a lot of elderly Māori now contacting me and saying, Winston, you're right. They're just using our language. Oh, uh, I had a uh, Māori elder said to me, Māori Kuya said to me, that's some older Māori lady said yep. to me, Winston, my people go to hospital and have to wait four, five, seven months for an operation uh, whilst they call it uh, their Maori name. And I'm not interested in the Maori name of the hospital. I'm interested in hospital treatment.
0: Yeah, just give me the bloody operation, will
1: you? <laughs> Look, one out of four people are waiting more than four months for obstetric operations. That's knees, hips. Oh, so for, uh, for orthopedic operations, that's knees, and. Um, Shins and hips, mm. shoulders, mm. more than four months. And then you've got, as that doctor said, sadly, we have to make a decision as to who's going to survive next week is our priority before we can get them any cancer treatment. That means somebody who gets three or four weeks is now having their life in severe, severe danger. A lot of people are dying and we're covering it up.
0: I was going to get onto the pharmac um, um, point that you made, but, um, and that's health. but how do you how do you reinvigorate the capacity and the efficiency then because this is going to have to be something you've got answers for if our health system is in the current state and seems to be slipping further you you've got you've got a what do they call it a, a whatever the pass the word with pass in it is um you'll inherit that have you been doing work on that because that sounds like a huge task and and people need to have confidence that they've got uh, at least a backstop of of reasonable first-world healthcare.
1: Well, exactly. But, you see, um, the government had uh, Rob Campbell working on it, (laughs) and uh, he's intensely into this work, and uh, to be fair to Rob, whatever you think of him, he's a serious change manager. He's got a record to be able to do the job properly, but he's only half into the job. He made a comment about the national party, and all of a sudden, gone up, right? Now, of course he shouldn't have said it, but he did apologise. But no, no, my Madad's can say what you like about it in a racist way and still keep her job. But my point is he was dealing with a major problem because the health system was in a bad state for a long time. And you had a whole lot of thinking going on that went something like this. Well, we don't want to analyse that because if we do, we'll have to treat it. I know. I was there when I was seeing this emerging and thinking, why don't we get back to first world principles? Health accessibility to people who are ill, and let's hope I'm not ill myself. Housing that is safe and affordable, that is not going to cost me more than thirty percent of my wage to pay for the mortgage, the insurance, and the rates. Our first world education as an escalator for my children to go as far as they can go, and we critically need that investment in human capital and first world wages. Now we're doing anything but that at the moment. But in the health system, it can be fixed, but it needs more Fergus money. So I would stop. Trying to spend 29 billion on a hopeless light rail in Auckland, 16 billion on the Onslow project, and a whole lot of other stupid ideas that won't work and never have worked. Or, for example, 1.9 billion on mental health and ending up with five beds. I'll stop wasting money and start telling to people who are ill, who are mentally ill, and people who need treatment. So refocus your expenditure.
0: I, I notice you mentioned Mike King, you know, and that you'd support his, his gumboot charity. And I, I know Mike reasonably well, and have talked a lot about his with him about what he tries to do, and have have observed kind of from remote, but uh, seen the difference that that operations like his can actually make in the real world. Yet he has so many stories of of being sort of blocked from from doing his work, where he has absolute factual evidence that his approach might not help every single person but but does work at scale, and yet, you know, if I'm to interpret what he says, that, that they kind of try and block him. Why does that happen?
1: It's incredible. There's a lot of examples in the history of other cultures and other religions. It's like Jesus getting rid of the money changers because <laughs> they were the problem, right? Yeah. But here we've got the system that Mike's trying to apply to, and he's got some political support from people like me, but the system in there is acting as a giant Block a giant detour. Meanwhile, they are focused on 1.9 billion of their ideas and got five hospital beds. And I heard a lady on this morning on um, the, 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 the national radio talking about what's going on. I've never heard, heard so much gibberish about what's not happening. Got all the language. You'll notice these days that I don't know where they get this uh, training from. But put no. a microphone under their mouth. You wave your hand around. Look like you've got sympathy and they start your tongue going, and away it goes. When it's all over, you ask yourself, what did that mean? So when will that hospital get this, that, or or, or whatever? And there's no answers, and it's tragic. But I am going to make it very clear that people like Mike King and, uh, you know, the um, famous All Black, what's his name, Uh, John John Kirwan? Kirwan, yeah. They're doing the best they can, and we should give them some assistance. And, you know, St. John's. How come St. John's is hard up against it? Money well, they've won't.
0: never been busier for a start. I know that.
1: Yes. But, you know, my out commitment is they want 90% funding, so they want 10% from the public. That's their view, and that's what we were striving towards and we were getting towards it when we went out of power in 2020. And then you've got lifesavers. You've got rescue helicopters. you got Plunkett. You've got Farmac. These are all in my speech. Contrary to what that lady said the other day, she clearly hadn't read it about those are the primary things that need to be funded. But above all, get the staff back, give them the conditions and get on with the job. We are spending billions less in public health and trying to get a first world outcome.
0: I think you used the word puffery in relation to Pharmac. Um, you're saying you'll ensure Pharmac has more funds. And this is this is of great interest to New Zealanders because, you know, this is how some get through the day or get extend their lives to a normal span through the advancement in drugs that it seems many other first world countries have, but we don't. So what's the puffery all about? Is it the way they position themselves that they're doing a great job, but?
1: Well, it's saying, look, we must get ourselves in the Women's Weekly. We must get ourselves in the Listener you must not going to articles for the leader of Pharmac. No, madam, we don't want you in that. We want you there, making sure that Big Pharma is giving you the product at the right price because we have paid a bit more for it as well. You just can't have both outcomes. And we are a country that's living with third-world drugs. We're getting the first-world drugs far too late and we're not putting enough money into it. And so we really need to prioritise what's important. And why is it important? Because like education looking after people's health is investing in human capital the sooner i can get that person back into the workforce the sooner that person is a taxpayer person if i can give someone a free medical doctor's visit over 65 uh, or three checks a year or two in, in three years and they don't go to hospital only one in a hundred these needs not to go to hospital and i'm saving money now we've got our priorities all wrong at the moment and sadly in the political environment, the people that turn up with common sense are not there in large measure.
0: Bring back common sense.
1: <laughs> There's a
0: good uh, strap line. Okay, and, and, and the last of, of these points uh, is around crime, and I think people are getting quite worried about crime. It's obvious. There seems to be, or well, not a day go by, uh, without some sort of gun crime. That, in my experience as a younger person, was so rare in this country. Yes. And I was talking to my dad the other day, and he said, Look, you know, a, a murder every six months was news. Now, I know things have moved on, and, uh, you know, living mm-hmm. doesn't get that much easier. It gets more complicated, and there's all these pressures, mm-hmm. but there does seem to be a crime wave. Yes. Um, what do you do about that?
1: Well, that's a big question I'm a question of uh, a gun and people uh, shooting it all every day. But weren't the guns taken off people? Well, they weren't taken off the right people.
0: Why do we know?
1: Reface it. They were. They weren't taken off the wrong people. And why do I know that? Because they didn't go and find them. I mean, they, they, you had to. They knew that they were there, but they didn't go and find them. They went and took them off a whole lot of people who could be who were safe with a gun. But uh, why? Why I, do? I, well, it I doesn't mean, make sense. Yeah, but I believe there's stricter gun laws. But you have to focus on those who are dangerous with a, a gun make sure that they're psychologically uh, um, capable of handling the issue that or the agility they've got and also you know out on the farm and places like that if an animal's dying and the the agony and the pain the torture is terrible you you need a gun right there right now to, to stop it it's being you know humane so to speak but we've got it's out of hand here we need to refocus on what we're doing but look come back to the crime thing what's sadly happening as a result of much of our education and our social system. Back when the Labour Party first gave out um, the family Benefit in the 30s, they gave it only to the mother. Guess why? She was far more likely, about 99.9% more likely to do the job properly than the male. See, today you'd be accused of being Hmm. sexist.
0: I can't believe you said that, Winston.
1: What? No, no. like I've been saying for years. I said the married woman. No, no,
0: no. I was just, I was just joking because, like, like you say, you say that, uh, you say that now.
1: But, um, but Mary, I've said to married woman and on the Mariah, I said, you know, I, I was the one that put the uh, married woman's welfare legal on an independent basis. It's because I know that you do all the work. Yeah. <laughs> your husbands and, and and your partners are peacocks. I know that. <laughs> I'm going to back you. That's the first one they ever did. And I'm, I was one that funded Kapahaka, put new money into the Maori wardens because they're out there doing the job. And it's peanuts. But the thing is, we, our law problems start with the, the reduction of the importance of family or care. And often that young child, usually a male, is on the way to you know, purgatory unless that child is arrested and stopped and assisted. And I don't mind grabbing all of them and putting it back on the straight and narrow, so to speak, and have programs to do that. But what I don't want is all a sociological riffraff rubbish that passes <laughs> for a solution. Why is it that Maori go into the army and they just love it? Because it's mother, grandmother, grandfather, sister, lover, everything all in one. They feel they belong. And we can, and this is not a sociologically furnished or prepared operation. No, it's the army. Hmm. They feel they belong. And years ago, and New Zealand should remember to see it. years ago, uh, Robert Muldoon, the Prime Minister, asked the head of the military, General, uh, Major General Poonanga, how many Maori are in the army? Now, the answer is stunning, and we need it in all of our policies today. Poonanga said to him, Prime Minister, we only have soldiers in the army.
0: Oh, wow. What a Definitely great answer. we lost. lost. Okay, and then there are the gangs winding up soon here. Um then there are the gangs and we hear them in the news all the time and I'm sure a lot of people are wondering how do you how do you fix that? I mean can go in and well, with the army I suppose and 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 huge bulldozers and drive over the the compounds and things like that probably won't solve anything but uh, is there any realistic um way of of solving this in any sort of meaningful time.
1: Yes, there is. You go to the gangs and say, this is what's going to happen in the future. We're offering you this. We're offering this sort of employment. We're offering this sort of training. But this is the consequences. You're never going to be able to carry on the way you are because your collective association together is going to be illegal. We're going to change the law like they did in Western Australia. We're going to mean it. We're not anti mari because anyone who's got Maori in them like I have and sees when they're on the six o'clock news at night, the shame of Maori at that image of themselves knows what I'm talking about. And so we'll give them a chance to get the new training, the new work and put them to work. But this massive engagement in the drug industry and the abuse of young people as recruits on the way through, which requires them to commit serious crime to even qualify to be part of their organisation, has to be understood. And no more of this golden syrup wish-washy talk doesn't have as its centre and core the rectitude and revival of the Maori people in this country.
0: Okay, to finish up, the events of just the past week, uh, if you look into the social media going around the world, people are calling for boycotts now of New Zealand products. We look like we're some kind of witch-burning stone age culture um there are videos everywhere um the questions of how it was policed uh, they were even considering you know uh, well uh, the woman Posey parker said she spent two hours in interrogation at immigration on arrival i mean this is not new zealand mate um if you if you were the leader of the country how would you be handling this right now, uh, assuming that you know things can get away from people without, you know, there's only so much direct control. But how would you be handling this? Because it seems we're in a bit of a pickle.
1: We'll never take things on face value. I don't know whether she spent two hours or two minutes. But The truth is that immigration had no reason to be carrying that question because she had been through the court. She'd won the court case or her application had been. She'd been past the minister. She'd won that one as well. So what on earth are they wasting two hours of her time if that's true? The second thing is, if they had left her alone, she would have got no publicity at all. But no, no, they went out there, took away her rights and the rights of so many other people. Women. Gave her mass publicity and blemished this country internationally massively. We're an export and trading nation. We're a country that needs tourism, which is our biggest industry, trying to come back. This is not a good look. But here's the real point. If you didn't like what Posey Parker was saying, then don't listen. But this cancel culture that says, if I don't like what you say, I'm going to shut you down, that's Hitlerism. That's Nazi. And it needs to be opposed.
0: Well, I guess it's out in the open and we can see it. That's one thing. Bear face. Hey, Winston, it's been great having you on our program. Really enjoyed the chat. And nice to be able to hear without <laughs> without you being sort of I'm trying to nail you to the wall every time on, on what are well, usually can trivial. Say, can,
1: I... can I say I really appreciate it myself. Because frankly, I I think the interviewing should be a chance to see the validity of what the other person's point of view is and to actually hear it. I still love interviews, particularly internationally, because when the interview was over, I knew a whole lot more about that person hmm. than before it started. Didn't mean I had to agree with them, but at least I knew. That's what I want to see back in New Zealand journalism. And Paul, if that's your intent, all power to you.
0: Let's see what happens next time. okay well hopefully we can catch up uh, on a semi-regular basis as uh, you um, go about the country messaging and all of that and this whole election campaign starts to really heat up so thanks for your time this morning on reality check radio winston peters
1: thank you very much
0: rcr with paul brennan reality check radio